This is Ralph Carhart, the author of The Hall Ball, and you are listening to Baseball and Barbecue. Boxing show. It's the, the boxing and boxing, and, and I don't know what the Q stands for, but that's what it is. Hey, Rocky, Rocky, you're dumber than a brick, Rocky. It's not baseball and boxing. It's baseball and barbecue. That's. Hey, Mickey, why are you always on me? You, you don't even give me a locker, Mickey. Where, where is this? Sorry, guys. Hey, hey, Jeff and Len, we're really sorry. We're out of here. Wow. Jeff. Talk about an intro. Talk about an intro. This is episode 83 being introduced by none other than Rocky Balboa and Mickey. Can you, can you, can you believe it? That's unbelievable. All right. So, so Jeff, now that, now that one of us, and, and we'll let the audience decide who it is, has totally embarrassed themselves. All right. Totally embarrassed themselves. But you know what? I know you don't care. You don't care if one of us embarrasses themselves, as long as it's not you, right? Oh, exactly. And if you have any comments on someone embarrassing themselves, give us a call. I just got to tell you, episode 83 said, let's just do something different. Let's shake it up. It's not episode 80. It's not episode 85. But you know what, Jeff? This episode is going to blow people away. Yes. But you know what remains the same? It's our phone number. Give us a call. 516 855 8214. Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Check us out on our Twitter page. We're at baseballandbbq. Check us out on Facebook. Check us out on YouTube. We're on Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Now that we got that out of the way, Leonard, go ahead, keep embarrassing yourself. <laughs> They, so basically, they should just check us out. No, you know what, Jeff? This episode, we have two phenomenal guests. I mean, this is really probably an episode that we should have saved probably for episode 100 or something. Because we have on Tom Gilbert to talk about baseball history. I'll let you talk more about that, of course. And Paulie G, who is, people might say, okay, it's, pizza. He, he's a pizza guy. But you know what? First of all, 
pizza is one of the most popular things right now. Well, I don't know if it's one of the most popular. I, I haven't seen the list lately, but I know it's an extremely popular thing to make in the grill. They're making all sorts of attachments for it to, to put into your grill. There's all sorts of recipes. It's a great way to make it because it, you, you have such a hot heat source. So pizza's great. And we have none other than the guy who has become synonymous with pizza making, Paulie G. And then he delights us with his talk of baseball, especially the Yankees. Yeah, it was very fun uh, talking to both of them. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what you thought about our conversation with, with Tom Gilbert. Well, you know, Len, this is a, a kickoff of a three-part series that we're going to have on baseball history. So Tom Gilbert wrote a book called How Baseball Happened, Outrageous Lies Exposed, The True Story Revealed. So he goes into all the myth and things that happened to when baseball evolved, what's true, what's not true, and it was fascinating. He really did great research on it, and then... Well, as I was saying with the series, we're going to have, we'll speak to a man named Jeff Cornhouse, who, who is, he, he plays baseball by these, you know, turn of the century rules, 1845, 1846 rules. So he's pine, very, tar. He's, pine tar. Pine tar. Yes, he's, <laughs> he's known by pine tar. And to wrap up the series, you're not going to believe this. Well, you'll, you'll believe it because you, you, you did the interview with me. I still won't <laughs> believe it. I, I don't believe much anymore. We have... Marjorie Adams, who is the great-granddaughter of Daniel Doc Adams, who is one of the most influential people um, when baseball really started. And, you know, the great-granddaughter, I mean, it's just two, three generations away. Right. That's, that is amazing. That's amazing. And you know what, Jeff? One of the things with Tom Gilbert and the history of baseball, at what a book he wrote, is that there is so much that we do not know about the history of baseball, or, or I, I should say that I thought I knew and did not know. There is so much to the history of baseball. It's not just clean cut. One guy invented baseball. And by the way, it was not Abner Doubleday. I'm going to, uh, that spoiler alert. What? It was not. Yeah, it was not Abner Doubleday. So, so let's, uh, let's get that clear, but he'll go into that. And he talks barbecue also. So we have two guests they're both talking baseball. They're both talking barbecue. They're both talking food. It can't get any better. So good that we're doing part one and part two for each of them because the interviews were so good that we had to split them up. We didn't want to cut anything out of them, so we split them up into two parters. So part one of each is going to be this episode, and part two of each is going to be in episode 84. That's right. So with that, let's start with Thomas Gilbert on how baseball happened. Thomas W. Gilbert is an author of many baseball books, including Baseball and the Color Line, Clemente, The Soaring Twenties, and Playing First, along with many others. His latest book is How Baseball Happened, Outrageous Lies Exposed and a Truth Story Revealed. The forward is by baseball historian John Thorne. We are thrilled to have Thomas W. Gilbert on Baseball and BBQ. Welcome, Thomas. Welcome. I am happy to be here. Thank you. You are the perfect, now as we just found out, you are really the perfect guest because we will be talking barbecue. So you you are the whole two kill, kill two birds with one stone guest. Exactly. So, what birds? <laughs> what did I say? Kill two stones with one bird? <laughs> yeah, no, a bad cooking tip. Tom, let's get right down to it. All right. 
the book is what we love. We love baseball history. And basically, I'm going to tell you that I know that Abner Doubleday invented the game of baseball. Right? I mean, that's, isn't that what, isn't that what this book is all about? Baseball history. Well, yeah. uh, In the beginning is about uh, all the things that aren't true. And most of it is about what really happened. And I'm a historian. I've written about baseball and and history of other things. And I stopped being surprised a long time ago when I look into something and find out that what we all think about it is is off or, or even wrong. This is a little different, and that's where the outrageous part comes in, <laughs> because the people that made up the Doubleday story knew it was wrong, that none of them believed it. So it's more, I think the technical term is BS, uh-huh. but it, it served a purpose. You know, a lot of baseball historians, you know, the, the people that I talk to when I go to baseball history conferences and the people I work with, they don't need to be told that Abner Doubleday didn't invent baseball. A lot of them believe that the Knickerbockers and Cartwright kind of invented baseball, sort of. The truth is that none of these stories is true in the slightest. And in both cases, I was surprised to find out about the Knickerbockers, the people that told the stories didn't believe them either. So both stories born in bad faith, as I say in the book. Right. So the origins of baseball, you, you, you mentioned rounders, you mentioned cricket. Did it kind of evolve from that? Or, or is it something... You know, no, you know the, the rounders thing drives me crazy, too, because that one is so persistent. You know, I think it's because people think they sound smart when they say that baseball came from rounders. It's one of those kind of things. Uh-huh. And, you know, Doubleday is more like Washington chopping the cherry tree down. The more you learn about the people that gave us baseball and the times that it came out of, the more you realize that, well, first of all, it didn't come from rounders. Like the most you can say is that it had a distant family relationship to it. I would say, you know, it's possible they're second or third cousins. But the funny thing about the Doubleday story, right, you know, Albert Spaulding is the uh, agent of this story. He's the powerful Cubs owner who was upset when Henry Chadwick started saying when he was an old man, you know, I think it comes from rounders. And people respected Chadwick and Chadwick believed it. And it sounded plausible. And it made Spaulding crazy because he's speaking for organized baseball and as then as now, baseball markets itself is 100% original and American. The idea that it came from England is more offensive the more <laughs> you go back in time in America. We don't feel in sense of inferiority to the UK now. But 1905, it's fighting words. 1860, it's fighting words. 1845, it's fighting words. The thing about Spalding is he's remembered by the more sophisticated baseball history aficionados for inventing the stupid lie. But in the same Spalding Guide in 1908, where he published the findings of the Bogus Commission, he has an essay in which he explains in great detail where he thinks baseball came from. And so does Henry Chadwick. It's sort of a point counterpoint. And you know what? Spalding's argument, if you just set aside the whole Doubleday thing, which is basically propaganda is really the word for it. Right. Spalding had a very good grip on, on why baseball didn't come from grounders and how it actually evolved. And that's the crazy thing. He invented this stupid lie, but he was right. It's a lie told in the service of a truth. Baseball is 100% American in every way that really matters. And I compare it to the U.S. Constitution. If you want to argue it, you could say this comes out of English culture, English history, English ideas. But the whole point of it was not to be English. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Supposed to be truly American. And it was was kind of for the, I guess what I would say called middle class, but you referenced the EUB, the 
emerging, urban, I, I probably going to get Bourgeoisie, there you go. Yeah, you know, I had second and third thoughts about inventing an acronym, but the problem is that society was different before the uh, Industrial Revolution. And the modern middle class is descended from this group of people that I call the, I didn't, I didn't invent the term emerging urban bourgeoisie. Historians have said that, but I can't keep writing it, so I call them the EUB. Right. But <laughs> as soon as you say things like middle class, upper class, and working class, you get anachronistic ideas in your head because society wasn't organized that way. And as I can give you a million examples, which I won't. But as soon as you say middle class, people get the wrong idea. Mm-hmm. But you, if we got in a time machine and went back to 1840 or 1850, we'd be in America where people in the country and people who are laborers and people who are recent immigrants, they have zero leisure, no time for sports. There are no real sports. If you were a working man, you're working 10, 12, at least hours a day, six days a week, no baseball on Sunday, even when baseball was invented. And then the upper classes, the old money rich in a place like New York or Boston or Philadelphia couldn't be less interested in team sports. They were interested in things like boxing and horse racing and uh, yachting. Uh, so the baseball was on a mission uh, to become a national sport. It was self-conscious about it from the beginning. They, they called themselves, they called their governing body the National Association of Baseball Clubs in 1858 when all the clubs were in lower Manhattan, virtually all of them. Uh, none of the other American games claimed to be a national game. So they did this way ahead of time. And it shows that this was their agenda um, to become a national sport. Um, so uh, the vehicle for doing that was marketing it to the kind of people that they thought uh, they could appeal to, that would make it respectable, that would help spread it. And these are these enterprising, new, prosperous urbanites who are not aristocrats in any sense, but they have money and they have leisure and they actually successfully sold them on the first team sport. And that's a big part of the story that I'm telling. And mm-hmm. it explains things like how they marketed it and why the Knickerbockers were used as a brand because they were so respected by this group of people and why they were allergic to gambling. Henry Chadwick was obsessed with keeping baseball at arm's length from gambling because the EUB is native born Protestants who are extremely moralistic. In the book, I mean, this is a this must have been some odd family because you have thirteen baseball dads, fathers of baseball. So <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of a Maury Povich episode. <laughs> <laughs> so it just goes back to that whole: not everybody can be the father, the dad, and even some of these people have it on their tombstones. So they do. Eternity, um, two of them in one cemetery. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So, you know, there's an old saying, ask the wrong question, get the wrong answer. My brother's a reporter and he always says, you know, the hardest thing to do is to change a a narrative that people have internalized. So the narrative is that, well, if Abner Doubleday didn't invent invent baseball, who did? So was it Cartwright? That's a more modern idea. But the truth is that one person did not invent baseball. I mean, that's staggeringly obvious from the actual historical record. And it's an idea that I call it a historiographical zombie. You can keep punching it in the nose, but it's going to keep coming back up. Right. Even Alexander Cartwright's Hall of Fame plaque has father of, of modern baseball, but we don't know and if that's that true or not. It's not true. And now Alexander Cartwright, to be honest about it, every single word on that a plaque is false. Every single word. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, that's part of the story I tell in the book. It's the reasons why this happened are kind of interesting, but 
Cartwright isn't even a particularly important person in the history of the Knickerbocker Baseball Club. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a long, interesting story. I, one of the things I do is genealogical research. And, you know, when you do a book like this, that comes in handy. And the main thing I learned from researching my family and other people's is the lies people tell are much more interesting than the truth. <laughs> they, tell you, they tell you what, who, who people really are. And so if you read my book, you'll find out why those two lies among others, we're told, and it's quite revealing. Absolutely. The book is called How Baseball Happened, Outrageous Lies Exposed, How Baseball Happened, The True Story Revealed. A ton of research went into this book. There's so many different ways you could go, the people that we could ask you about. There were some fascinating people in this book, one of which you put some time into, um, his family, James Creighton, yeah, who died at 21, and yet seemed to have a major role in the game, was mm-hmm. an incredible pitcher, was almost a pitching machine. It, it was, he was probably the first pitching machine. That, that's he, was, he was the first modern pitcher, in my opinion. And, yeah. you know, he totally turned the game upside down. And the truth is that, I mean, there's, there are things we don't know about him and there are things we do know about him. We don't have video of him. We don't know exactly what he was doing on the mound. We know what effect it had. And... The descriptions of how he pitched, even though he was throwing underhand, sound a lot like what modern pitching is. You know, people talked about the velocity, his incredible velocity. They couldn't hit it. And Henry Chadwick, who saw him, would say for years, velocity, velocity. <laughs> he said, if you don't have command and movement, it doesn't matter how fast you're throwing. There's some question about whether he threw the first curveball. And I used to laugh at that idea, and I'm starting to believe it. It's sort of a puzzle trying to figure out what he was doing. But here's the thing. Up until Creighton showed up in about 1859 as a factor in baseball, he's a teenage phenom and was also a great cricketer, just an outstanding athlete. And until then, the way baseball worked, it was a little bit like this pickup game I play in on Sundays in my neighborhood. You know, we don't want people throwing too hard because we have old men in the game. So the idea is you're on your honor to kind of put it over the plate and you can change speeds a little bit and try and get people out, but you're not supposed to blow people away. And that's the way pitching was. The original rules said you have to throw dead underhand with no jerk or snap. So it's like pitching horseshoes. That's what you were told to do. Okay, there's no strike zone. And what does that tell you? Well, you're on your honor to put the ball at the plate, and the batter's on his honor to swing if he gets good pitches. Well, everything is out the window when Creighton comes along and somehow appears to be within these rules and yet is throwing with incredible velocity and movement. And nobody can hit the guy. And, you know, what would you do if you were in an important game and you're facing this with nobody calling balls and strikes? You would keep the bat on the shoulder. Right. Yeah. And yeah. wait for him to make a mistake or wait for him to get tired. Right. Well, that's what people did. And we have pitch counts for some of his games that are insane. Really? 70, 80, 90 pitches an inning. Wow. An inning. That's amazing. An inning. He would pitch like 300 pitches in a game. He did. He was over 300 and several times. And, of course, it was boring. This baseball had passed a rule in 1858 saying that the umpire can call a warning strike if a guy takes too many good pitches. And what they had in mind was, you know, if he takes seven, eight, nine, if he's really pushing it, well, you say, okay, strike one, man, you better start swinging. But umpires didn't like to do it because it had never been done. And there are seasons, seasons go by and the baseball authorities are telling umpires, please do this. And they're reluctant to do it. Well, they have to do it when Creighton comes along and they start calling strikes more and more frequently. And, people start imitating Creighton and they're doing what he was doing, whatever that was. And they're throwing hard and they're starting to dominate the hitters. And 
then we have the problem of pitchers not putting the ball over the plate. And then you start calling balls. Well, you know, you see where this is going. You, what's going is a strike zone. Right. And it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's basically true that the strike zone, the most important thing in baseball, the thing that we're watching on television every night, is a reaction to one guy's pitching innovation. That's amazing, right? Yeah. So can you have a bigger effect on baseball than that? I mean, it make dwarfs Babe Ruth, you know, I think you can say. Sure. He's not in the Hall of Fame, and most people have never heard of him. Right. <laughs> I think what our listeners, some of our listeners, if you know baseball history, you know that, that obviously it's evolved. We went to a game where recently when we went to, we went to Hinchliffe Stadium, and nearby they had an exhibit, and we went to an 1860 rules game. They don't play with, they, there were no gloves. You know, they throw underhand, like you said. Again, we were asking the rules, and they said, well, the, the umpire can issue this warning. And there were batters there that were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And they're like, is he ever going to swing? And then he'd swing, and maybe there'd be a foul ball. And then you keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And there was somebody up, and, and this person got hit twice. And got hit once, didn't take a base, got hit again, and then ended up taking a base. I don't know, was it at the discretion of the, of the umpire to... Yeah, I believe that was the rule. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that was it. There was a game in 1858, a very important game, because it was the first game where anyone paid to see it. And it was, uh, you know, a big part of the story in my book is where fans came from. And I say that they weren't invited to the party, they crashed it. Nobody who was building this game of baseball had any idea that it would become entertainment. Right. It wasn't, it was the furthest thing from their mind. But fans decided to start rooting. And the main reason they did was because of the rivalry between Brooklyn and New York. So in 1854, the first Brooklyn club is formed. There's an established baseball scene of lower Manhattan clubs. And the Brooklynites, you know, they're, it's a young, up-and-coming, booming city, and they want to beat New Yorkers at their own game. And they put a lot of energy into it. And four years later, they challenged the New York clubs to a best two out of three city versus city all-star series. It's the first time a baseball team represented a city. And... They charged 10 cents for groundskeeping because they played in a horse racing track and they were going to screw up the grass. And to everyone's complete shock, now this is the time when, if you read game stories, a few dozen people show up at a game and, and it's remarked upon. So uh, normally it would be five or 10 friends of the players and then one or two bookies and gamblers. Well, eight to 10,000 people show up at this horse racing track. Which was in Queens, right? It was in Queens, right near where Shea was. Yeah, the Corona Railway Station was the way people got there. and. So during that game, there was a guy named John Holder playing for the Brooklyn side, and he overhears a gambler in the front row betting 100 bucks that Holder will hit a home run. And he kind of turns around and says something to the guy, and the guy says, I'll cut you in for 25 if you do it. <laughs> so what did he do? He waited, he let 30, 40, 50 pitches go by, and then he clocked one over Harry Wright's head and won the 25 bucks. So, you know, it's, it's a fun story. It probably wasn't that much fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I was going to mention the Brooklyn, New York City rivalry. I'm glad, glad you did. At that time, Brooklyn was its own separate city from New York City. Correct. Until 1898. Right. Could you tell us how important it was baseball down in, in, in Manhattan and how, how it went to Hoboken at the Elysian Fields, I believe it's pronounced? Talk about how well, important the reason, that was. The reason, you know, the, the claim of the Elysian Fields to being baseball's birthplace, which you get from, you know, the city of Hoboken. Sure. Um, yeah, is a bit bogus. It's 
it, it, that was the home of baseball the way the Meadowlands are the home of the New York Giants. <laughs> it said there were New York teams who were taking the ferry to Hoboken because it was a 15-minute ride to open space. And I have a whole chapter about the Elysian Fields because it's interesting why and where and then, why then, who, why that happened. And the short answer is that Manhattan ran out of space. You know, there, there's not really a New Jersey baseball scene initially. Baseball was evolving, and, and there were four principal teams that played in the Elysian Fields, the Knickerbockers, Gotham's, Eagles, and Empires, sort of the big four. And then the evolution stalls a bit. And, you know, the, you have to step back. And the context of this thing is that, just to give you a framework, in 1855, it would be hard to find anyone in America that knows what baseball is. In 1854, the president of the Gotham writes a letter to the New York City newspapers promoting the game. And he's saying, we have three established clubs with 90 members. That's a, he's bragging. This thing's really taken off, but no one's heard of it anywhere else. And at that point, it sort of stalls. And it's basically in a little bubble in the Elysian fields. And the next evolutionary steps, which no one sees coming, aren't going to happen there because there's no home teams. There's no, they don't represent communities. People might stop and watch it, but it's not in any great numbers. It's the Brooklyn thing that pulls all this energy in. So as soon as Brooklyn is playing New York, it, we, it's obvious to us that why that would lead to general public interest. But it, it was a complete shock to baseball people at the time. And, you know, comically, Henry Chadwick and other baseball people, the first time they started seeing big crowds show up, they were terrified. They thought it represented an explosion of interest in gambling. Right. But they actually couldn't imagine why anyone who wasn't related to the players cared who won. <laughs> And hence the rivalry of New York and Brooklyn, Giants and Dodgers came out of that. and Still with us. Mets yeah, and Yankees, Dodgers and Giants, Dodgers sure. and Yankees, uh, West Coast. Yep. It's, it's pretty much the, by far the most important rivalry in baseball. And you read my book, you'll find out how important it was. You know, without it, it may not have happened. Right. Some, there's some names I want to throw out at you. One of them, I was actually surprised at... at the kind of record he had as a pitcher. He didn't even pitch for that long a time. And then he became a successful businessman. And a lot of people will recognize this name for the ball that we all call the Spalding. Yeah. Uh, Albert Spalding. The guy, I said he retired because of acute wealth at 29. <laughs> the guy was making too much money with his sporting goods business to pitch. And he was a dominant pitcher. And he pitched yeah. into the pros. He, he pitched uh, for the Boston Red Stockings, which is, was made up of what, the leftovers of the great Cincinnati Red Stockings. So he goes with Harry Wright to Boston and dominates the first professional league. When I say dominates, you know, in those days, pitchers were everyday players. So I, I don't remember the exact record the Red Stockings had in their first season, but it was something like, you know, 79-4. and four. And Spalding is pitching all but about two games. So he's going something like 72 and 0. And you know, people have calculated his war. It's better than Sandy Koufax. <laughs> and yet he retires at 29. Yeah. And he became a sort of robber, you know, classic turn of the century robber baron. And he's, he's the de facto commissioner of baseball when they have the Players League War. He had grandiose ideas like spreading baseball around the world. He was involved in both international tours, the one in the 1870s and then the one that in 1889 when he took baseball, two baseball teams in the offseason to Hawaii, Australia, uh, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Italy, and the UK. He actually thought baseball was going to take over the world within a matter of decades. And it may be doing it, but it's doing it very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he was, he was really, uh, I think he had 250-something wins. I mean, his winning percentage is unreal. His stats are unreal. It's amazing. Uh, 
But I was inter- it was interesting to read that the teams would basically have one pitcher who was expected to pitch every game, go the whole game, and then they had one guy that was possibly the, the I guess, the understudy almost. They called him the change pitcher, and he was usually at second base or right field. I mean, a team in the late 1860s at the end of the amateur era would have a, a bench of one. You know, the, that great Red Stockings team that won 84 in a row over parts of three seasons had a one backup. They had one utility <laughs> guy. <laughs> oh, and by the way, you mentioned uh, that we all think of them as the first professional team, and that's not exactly the case, is it? No, it is not. And, um, you know, I was a little exhausted by Chapter 9 in puncturing every <laughs> stuff we all believe. <laughs> but, you know, I guess it's kind of classic because the Red Stock, like the Knickerbockers, were claimed by amateur baseball as dishonestly as a kind of brand because they liked them as their forefathers for social reasons. Professional baseball likes to be descended from the Red Stock, mostly because... I mean, they were incredibly important historically. It's just that they didn't do almost any of the things you think they did. You know, their tours were really important. They promoted baseball. You know, the, the thing that's really different about them is really subtle because at the end of the amateur era, so the amateur era ends with the season of 1870. 1871 is the first professional national league. Our national league starts in 76. But in the late 1860s, the whole amateur ethic was at the top levels of competition was fading away. And teams like the Atlantics paid their players a share of the gate, you know, it's pretty hard not to do that when you're making money. And the Red Stockings were organized a little differently. But, you know, the main difference was it's normally cast in history books as professional versus amateur. But the amateur clubs were all getting paid. And the difference between the Red Stockings and the other great amateur clubs was that the Red Stockings were out-and-out mercenaries. You know, what I say in the book is it wasn't that they were professional and other teams weren't. It was that they were treating the players as commodities. So there's a great game, in historic game in June, uh, middle of June, 1870. And that's when the streak comes to an end, the 84-game winning streak, which started in late 68. So, you know, in the 69 season, which was commemorated with uh, patches last year, it seemed like 10 years ago, that was, what was it, 57? 57 games, I think. But the total streak was 84. And they come to Brooklyn, and they're huge overdogs, and the Atlantics have this incredibly stirring extra inning victory where they give up two runs in the 11th and score three in the bottom of the inning. And everyone goes crazy. And if you read the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, unlike modern historians, they're not saying amateurism has in a, like Camelot has defeated professionalism. What they said was, our guys might be getting paid, but they're Brooklyn boys <laughs> who came up through our system, who played on Brooklyn youth teams. And that was true. Who live in Brooklyn. They're part of the community. This idea has momentum to this day, right? You know, that some of the most beloved players are guys who play in their hometown. Sure. And, I mean, Ed Cranepool, Met fans loved him. He was from New York. And we still have this idea that somehow it should be that way, that the players should have a connection to us in our real lives. But it almost never is true, right? Right. And the Red Stockings were put together the way George Steinbrenner would put together a team if you put him in a time machine. They just said, where's the best right fielder? Buy him. Where's the best center fielder? Buy him. And there was one Cincinnatian on the team. And that's what offended the Daily Eagle. They said, they're nothing but hired men. <laughs> also names, of course, you mentioned Henry Chadwick. So Henry Chadwick, for anyone, uh, there's, there's a lot in the book about him. But he was a writer. I mean, that's if, if anyone didn't get that from this conversation. He was a writer, wrote about baseball many years. But 
at one time was writing about a game that not a lot of people saw, right? Yeah, so he, he was interested in sports, and his father was a journalist, and hilariously enough, um, wanted to become a musician because he thought it would pay better. <laughs> but uh, his father had a rough time as a journalist, and Henry loved to write, and he loved sports, and his first sport was cricket. He came to uh, New York when he was 13 from England, and he, for a long time, was trying to promote cricket in America. And in 1856, the way he would tell the story is he has this epiphany when he's in the Elysian Fields, and he sees a game between the Gothams and Eagles. It's a famous story that he told over and over again, and it struck him. Cricket was not going to make it. It was going to be baseball. And I take a dive into that story in my book, and I argue that it wasn't what people think. What people think is that he was impressed with how baseball was being played, that somehow it was, it was more sophisticated than it had been when he was younger. That it was, and somehow the other idea that floats around is that it's somehow more suited to the American character. Cricket's too slow or whatever. As, I, as we were talking, baseball could be pretty slow too. And that's all baloney. Uh, you know what he saw? He saw people from the EUB. He saw respectable, solid businessmen, merchants, lawyers, doctors, taking it really seriously. And they're, they're training and they're practicing and they're trying to beat each other. And that's what made, what he realized was if these kind of people are interested in this game, it's got possibilities in this country. And that's what, that's what happened in 1856. The other interesting thing about Chadwick, he then became the first, not the first baseball writer, but the really the most important early baseball writer. Uh, wrote for the Times, wrote for many, many other publications, ends up in old age editing the annual Spalding Guide for years and years. The cool thing about him is that he invented most of the statistics that we use. He was sort of a classic Victorian rationalist. And what he wanted to, what he said was, we need to measure performance in an accurate way in order that the game will be self-improving. So it'll keep getting better. I mean, this starts, he's really the father of analytics. He invents batting average and earn run average and all these other statistics that we use. And, you know, I, in, the, my, in my afterword in the book, I imagine some of these baseball founders coming to the present day. And okay. I imagine Henry Chadwick saying, wow, I can look on a phone and see what someone's war is. This is fantastic. <laughs> and Bad and thing course, that. <laughs> his dream came true, right? I mean, uh, you watch the Rays play the Astros, and every time the Astros hit a line drive, there's a race standing there catching it. Yeah. Henry Chadwick would love this. This yeah. is what he wanted. Can you tell us how important F.K. Bounton was to but baseball? I think, I think he was the secretary of the Atlantic Baseball Club. Yeah, so yes. the Atlantics... They were a team that was backed by the political machine, the Democratic political machine that ran Brooklyn. And in a way, they were, even though there were other teams in Brooklyn, they were the most popular team in Brooklyn. They were a great dynasty. They were the world champions of baseball. You know, it wasn't a very big world, but they were the champions for years and years in the 1850s and 60s. But, you know, the players were sort of taken care of by this political machine run by a guy named Huey McLaughlin, who was in charge of hiring at the Navy Yard, which is a good thing to be. And there's a game in 1860 that I spent some time on in the book. And it's interesting from the idea of the development of the fan. It's the championship, deciding championship game between the Brooklyn Excelsiors, who are a little more socially elevated, living in now in what's, what's now Brooklyn Heights, backed by a lot of wealthy people. And they're playing the Atlantics, who are sort of the people's team. And, well, there's a, 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 some really big crowds turn out for these games. The biggest crowds since that other series we talked about in 1858. And the crowds are kind of rowdy. And it's kind of funny reading between the lines of the descriptions, because in the 1860 game, whatever was happening in the stands rattled the Excelsiors. And their captain, a guy named Joe Leggett, kept saying to the umpire, you know, this is wrong. We, uh, you know, I, uh, all this booing, all this yelling, all this screaming at the umpire, 
he said that if this doesn't stop, we're going to walk off the field. You know, we can't, we can't play under these conditions. And eventually he does, he walks off the field and the umpire gives a forfeit to the Atlantics and it becomes a massive controversy. And most historians kind of go along with Henry Chadwick's view that the guy did the right thing. And at that time, Chadwick was disturbed by the behavior of crowds at a ball game. Mm. Well, if you break it down and read every game story, what they were actually doing was rooting really hard. <laughs> they were doing exactly what we do when we go to a <laughs> playoff game. Nobody did anything violent or threw anything. They got upset if the umpire called a close call against the team. They cheered their guys. They booed the other guys. And Bowden wrote this letter a few weeks after the controversy when people were blaming the Atlantics and their fans. And he said, don't you get it? Like fans are part of the game now. And if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. It's a great letter. Right. Yep. Which you printed in the book. Yep. Great, great letter. Absolutely. Tom, I wrote down two names and I should have taken better notes because as I'm reading the book, I wrote these two names down. I don't remember why <laughs> I wrote them down, but I'm going to Maybe say I can that. tell you. <laughs> Jack Chapman and Frank Grant. I know I found that interesting. When no, I- that's, yeah, Chapman was uh, one of the stars of this Atlantics team we were just talking about, a Brooklyn guy. And I should remind everyone watch, listening to this that nobody had gloves in this time. Gloves didn't come in until the 1870s. And Chapman was a famous defensive outfielder. And he won a couple of games with walk-off catches barehanded. And this must have been very exciting. You know, the descriptions of it are exciting. You know that famous Kevin Mitchell play where he catches sure. the barehanded? Yep. That's what it looked like. You know, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, you're up by two. And Chapman's screaming, streaking into left center and diving and catching it barehanded. That's, he had this nickname, Death to Flying Things, which is pretty hard to beat. But he also was a very interesting guy off the field. He, the Atlantics, they were running a looser way than the Red Stockings. They had two players, Chapman and Bob Ferguson, who handled the business side. They were actually active players. And they would schedule the games and take care of the money that people that came in from ticket sales, etc. Chapman ends up making baseball his profession. And when professional baseball started to spread around the country in the late 19th century, he was hired by several cities, six or seven, to establish their first professional franchises, mostly minor league franchises. And he ends up managing the Buffalo team, the Buffalo Bisons in the 1880s. And it turns out that he had no problem with hiring black players who were excluded by, from ba- amateur baseball. That's a whole other topic, which is covered in the book, mm-hmm. how that happened. You know, professionalism, which kind of has a bad name in some, to some historians. If you know anything about amateur baseball, my son was a pitcher through college. The one of the things that surprises you to learn is that amateur baseball is full of favoritism and corruption. And professional baseball is comparatively clean because it's about money. And when it's about money, you can't mess around, right? You can't have the coach's son pitch if the game really matters. So professionalism pressured baseball to integrate. It's kind of ironic, considering the history. And Chapman hires Frank Grant, who was a power-hitting second baseman, was the best player on the team. And he ends up spending uh, most of three seasons with Buffalo. But, you know, the racial situation was very, very unstable in that time in America. And they were abolitionists. They were racial liberals. There were people that believed in Reconstruction. There were people that were virulent racists. And, you know, I think we kind of stereotyped that time as everyone had primitive views about race. It's not really true. There were a lot of racial kind of heroes in my book, people that advocated integration, like the president of the athletics in Philadelphia. But the Frank Grant thing, it's a mixed picture how he was received. And a lot of his own teammates didn't want a black guy on the team. And I I reproduce a picture. Chapman basically insisted 
on keeping him on the team in spite of a lot of opposition. And people would bring up skin color and he liked to just laugh it off. He would say, I've seen darker Italians, he would say. He had a very modern attitude toward race. And there's a photograph reproduced in my book, the 1887 team picture. Look at the photograph sometime. It's very interesting because right before the picture was taken, a bunch of the teammates said, I'm not going to have my picture taken with this guy. Really? And Chapman told them what Leo DeRocher told the Dodgers in 47 in spring training is, you want to be on this team? You know, get in the bleeping picture. <laughs> <laughs> but they're looking away in protest, some of them, and no one in the picture is touching Frank Grant, but they're all touching each other. Right. And, you know, I wrote a book about the history of the color line, and this is a really interesting turning point. And baseball was basically, had no commissioner, no central authority at that time. If they did, they would have prevented it. The truth was that, you know, you could only get away with it because there wasn't a power structure to stop it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is just, it's amazing that that's part one. Yes. Just so many things. I, I want to go back. Actually, I have gone back and listened to that numerous times. And every time I listen to that, I learned something new. Yeah. Baseball, it, it's so complex how, how it came about. Absolutely. It evolved. Right. Right. It yeah. wasn't invented. It really evolved. Yeah. And, and how many fathers? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the so many people of... claim to uh, who invented baseball. Uh, but uh, you know what? In this series, we have Marjorie Adams, whose great-grandfather really put his stamp and really could be the really father of baseball. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So, we have part two coming up on the next episode. Jeff, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some great companies. One is fifthandcherry.com for incredible cutting boards. Two is baseballbbq.com for amazing grill tools and accessories. You've got to check both of them out. They will make fantastic gifts. We love them both. And of course, please go to the Pandemic Book Club. Give the website for that because that will help to these authors who are phenomenal and have been coming on the show. What, what's the website for the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, Jeff? PBBclub.com. Thank you. All right. I didn't have that right next to me, so I appreciate you giving that. And uh, Jeff, now who do we have next? Holy G. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's infectious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So here's our part one with Bully G. One of the more popular items to cook outdoors has become pizza. Whether it's ovens specifically designed for pizza making or apparatus you could purchase to convert your cooker into a pizza maker, people are quickly realizing that pizza is one of the best foods to make outside. In just 10 years, our guest has managed to enter into a saturated market and become a name and face well-known to pizza enthusiasts. He is another of our guests who chose to follow his real passion later in life and has become extremely successful at it. And we are thrilled to welcome Paulie G to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Paulie G. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. And as a matter of fact, to, to steal somebody's phrase, I'm more nervous than a long-tailed cat yeah, long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. You know, I love to see some of the people that you had on, and I, I can't believe that I talked myself onto this. Thing. <laughs> it is unbelievable. We just we luck out, Paulie yes. G, and now 
Our bucket list is complete. <laughs> this is it. At the end of this, we drop the microphone and we're done. We right. now. <laughs> That's a lot so, of pressure you're putting on me. <laughs> I have to tell you, Paulie, it's quite incredible. We have, I work with someone who actually, the other day, I think he, he ran over, you were at King Umberto's, and he ran over to see you, our producer, Jared Kasdan. Yeah, that, that was unbelievable. <laughs> it's like, Paulie G is at King Umberto's, I gotta go see him. I had and, forgotten all about me being on this thing, and thank God he was there, because <laughs> now I'm here. We're, we're very glad. And, have, you uh, been to, have you been to King Umberto's? Yes. Yes, yes. Have you gotten the Capellini cakes? No. And you I, I'm going to have to get the Capellini cakes. I'm going to have to tell Jared that he needs to get us the guy. He, yeah. he's a, <laughs> I'm going to tell him that. But there's a couple of pizza places I'm going to ask you about. Why don't, we, why don't we talk about that? I saw something very interesting. You're, you are all over the internet. So it made researching you, um, or, or as I like to call it, stalking, uh, a lot easier. You promote other pizza places, which is which is fascinating. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. You'll never hear me say that my pizza is better than anybody else's. You know, uh, I found the best way to compete in this business is to not compete at all. Just just be friends with everyone. Okay, we support each other. We're all colleagues, not competitors. And I just love doing that. And you know, there's some psychology to it. You know, if I, you know, every night I wear somebody else's hat in my restaurant. Okay. Uh, and I think, you know, if somebody sees me doing that psychologically, you know, they're going to think, wow, this guy's so comfortable, you know, about his pizza that he's willing to promote somebody else's. And it also, it also leads to some very good conversations. too. That's it, great. It, it really, we're all colleagues. And the more I support other people, they're going to support me. It, it, I learned a lesson. You know, I learned a lot of lessons from people in, in the pizza world. And this could be applied to any other cuisine or, or business. I used to go into uh, Totono's in Coney Island. I don't know if everybody knows what Totono's is, but it was a, an iconic pizzeria. At one time, everybody thought it was the first pizzeria in Brooklyn. My friend Scott Weiner has sort of disproved that recently. But long story short, I fell in love with the place. It was my pizza epiphany. And I was always excited about it. And then I started going to other places and discovering other pizza. And I'd go in and I'd speak to the owner. His name was Joe, God rest his soul. And I tell him about other places I went to and, and what I liked about it. And he was always like, ah, what do you want to go there for? What do you, you know? And, you know, it was just an uncomfortable conversation. And now, I, you know, I, I love when people, you know, ask me, how come you're wearing your competitor's hat? I get to explain it. And, you know, I, and, I, and I talk about other people's pizza and, and what I like. You know, I'm doing what I love by doing that. That's we, great. But, but you didn't start out that way. You started out in the tech industry. I think you were in accounting. You're working down on Wall Street, and you got to the love of, of pizza. Tell us how, how this all came about. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I, I chose a career when I was uh, very young because it was going to be the future. I chose corporate IT. I was actually in accounting before that, and I was kind of plateauing there, and I wanted to, you know, make more money in the future, and I chose that. But I really, I wasn't a geek, and I chose the geeky career and, you know, as, as time went on, I mean, for a very long time, I worked through it. I, I, I worked in, in IT for 30 years. But, you know, because I wasn't a geek and, uh, I, and I wasn't really made for the corporate world, I discovered. But I wish I had discovered it sooner. But because of that, I wasn't doing that well. And on the weekends, though, I, I was having fun 
doing other things, mostly cooking for friends and uh, inviting them over, entertaining. And I continued to do that. And as I plateaued in the corporate world, I started focusing more and more on that. I worked for AT&T and affiliated companies for 18 years. And then I got an opportunity to get an early pension and go out and become a consultant. That didn't work very well either because, you know, every few months you're looking for another job. But, and I had to do something. And eventually, I wound, I wound up building an oven at home. Long story short, I got a friend to help me do it. Not as a hobby. Not as a hobby. I, I did it solely because I wanted to open up my own pizzeria. And that was a way to prove to myself. I could you know, Paulie, Jeff, I got to go back to one thing. Because Paulie was talking about wearing others, other gear. We do the same thing with podcasts. We may be the only baseball and barbecue podcast, but there are lots of barbecue podcasts and lots of baseball podcasts. And we have those people on as well, because I believe this, we believe the same as you. Well, have you, you know, had so. my friend Billy Darney on yet? No. Do you know Billy Darney? No, I do not. You, you, I, I need, feel- you need to meet Billy Darney. Billy Darney is, is the, the barbecue prince of New York. Huh? He, he's, he has a place in Red Hook. Well, Hometown Barbecue. Oh, Hometown, one. of course. Yes, it's I know not, Hometown Barbecue. I have not been there. And I got the hat on right now, actually. Yeah. I wasn't going to wear a pizza hat. I was going to wear a barbecue hat tonight. And what makes Hometown Barbecue so great, the, the combinations of things that he does, he does a mashup. One thing that I always remember is a, is a pork belly banh mi, but the thing that makes Hometown Barbecue great is Billy Durney because he, he's, he's a restaurateur extraordinaire. He's just a great man. Uh, it, it's on. Yeah, a, yeah, you have to have them on. It's on a, a hometown barbecue is on a lot of the top barbecue lists. So and and it's a New York place, and of of course New York not known for barbecue, but New York extremely well known for pizza. So you decide I'm going to get into the pizza business. Okay, how is it that Paulie G? It's not unusual for somebody to open a pizza restaurant and to be very successful in the area, do very well. But you have become a name synonymous with pizza. I, I mean, just a perfect example is today, I mentioned to a couple of people that I was going to be talking to, to you tonight. Paulie G, Paulie G Slice Shop. Paulie G, uh, oh, I love the, the Hellboy. Uh, oh, I, I went, uh, I just bought on the, the, the Mike's Hot Honey uh, what did you do differently, Paulie? You know what? I, 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 try, I try to be humble. As I said, I, I, I made friends with other people. I never tried to look like I was trying to beat out other people. And I, right. I, just, I, I love eating pizza. So right. I'm, I'm doing what I love. And I think that shines through. And, you know, I was a guy who was in the corporate world for all of this time. I think there are a lot of people out there. And they, they kind of root for me because of that. And I, and I just kind of, you know, I just... Followed my instincts on that stuff. I opened up a wood-fired place, and it just it became a wonderful, a wonderful thing. But at the same time, the pizza that I had doesn't travel well, so I decided to open up a slice shop, and that was that was a great decision too. I just you know the, the neighborhood was upset that I wasn't offering takeout pizza anymore. And, uh, I did that, and and I don't know. I don't know what I did, but, you know, I, I, I do, you know, you look at my, my Instagram account, my Instagram, I have two Instagram accounts. The, the one that I started with, it's really not the Paulie G's Pizzeria 
Instagram account. It's not a business account. It's my life, really. I keep it focused on pizza and things, but it's my life. And, and, I, and I don't do things to alienate many people other than real. Can I say asshole on here? Other than real asshole? Yeah. Am I allowed to say that? Okay. Um, <laughs> you just did. Yeah. You know, people have tried to get me to talk politics and, you know, and, and things like that. And I just don't do that. I try to, you know, I try to be everybody's friend. Right. You know, and, and I just, you know, I, I, here, here's the thing that I think has really helped me. I, 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 when I cook, when I come up with recipes, I come up with recipes for one very special part. You know who that person is? Your wife. Me. You. Me, okay? <laughs> because, you know, I'm not going to make something because I think somebody else might like it. I'm going to make things that I love and hope that other people like it. Maybe that helped too. But, you know, I just, that's what I did. And, and, and with the slice shop, I, I just hit, you know, I, I hit this note with people at the right time. I decided that I was going to open a place that was an homage to the places I went to in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, right? That seemed to go over very well. And, and, I, and I, it's like a parallel. I, I, I make a parallel to vinyl. Everybody loves vinyl now, right? Uh, older people love vinyl because it reminds me when they were younger, they want to touch those albums again. Younger people love vinyl because they want to see what it was like to, to you know, to have vinyl. And it's the same thing with my pizza shop. So let's talk about your pizza shop. I know you have the slice shop, which you're using, I guess, a gas oven for the pizza. But in your Napolitano restaurant, you use a live fire oven. Now, yeah. that's an unusual oven. Could you tell us? What, I think you got that from Italy. I did. It was uh, when I built an oven at home to do, you know, to get myself started. And I was going to build my own in the restaurant to save money. But then I realized if there were problems with the oven, if it wasn't done right, I'd only have me to turn to. And I, I wanted no part of that. Right. So I decided that the style of pizza I was making, you know, this wood fired pizza is Neapolitan style pizza, inspired by it at least. I have my own little twists on it. I, I said, you know what? I'm going to get. Uh, an oven from Naples. And I found out that you could get an oven built there and shipped over and, you know, and put in place. And I decided to find, you know, many people felt was the best oven maker in Naples. And I had it, had it designed to, to be like the oven I built at home, to emulate the oven I had at home with the design I put on there. I had a a sun and a, a low, it said Napoli on it. And there was some lemons because I always made homemade lemoncello for my my pizza tastings, and I did that. And when I asked the oven maker to make the oven, I showed him pictures of it, and he emulated that the best he could with, with tile. And I created a connection between the pizza tastings I used to have at home. Because I, what I did was I started having friends and family over practicing on them. But eventually, my goal was to get my pizza enthusiast friends to come out and enjoy my pizza. A lot of them were bloggers, and I wanted them to say good things about my pizza and get my name out there. So I wanted there to be a connection when I opened up the restaurant to those pizza tastings that wound up, you know, becoming, uh, you know, somewhat desirable. People tried to, you know, get invited to my pizza tasting. So once I opened up the restaurant, there was that connection to that oven at home and those pizza tastings that people heard about. What kind of wood do you use in, the, in that oven? Kiln-dried hardwoods. Whatever, whatever hardwoods they come up with, with Premier Firewood in Connecticut, they bring it down, and, but the, the, the key is it's kiln dry. It makes it more explosive and it burns better. And more importantly, it kills all the bugs. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> now, 
you go on like I wouldn't say tours, but I was told say tours. Say tours. Okay, you go on tours. There's a couple of places they didn't pay anything. They just but I was asked if you've ever either tried them or have any. Would maybe you'll go try them. There's two places that we're going to say. One is Vaqueros, and uh, I think that's in Belrose, Queens. And then there's Jimmy's Pizza in Mamaroneck, New York. Well, I have to say, I have never heard of either of them. I will check them out. If somebody thinks they're worthy, I will check them out. But I must say, now that you mentioned Mamaroneck, New York, okay, when I go to Mamaroneck, New York, it's going to be very di- difficult for me to go anywhere but Sal's. And get that right. Sicilian slice. On the Maranek oh. Avenue. Not only that, my oh, favorite show pizza us. hat is a Sal's pizza hat. Do you do a lot of cooking still in the backyard, pizza in the uh, yard? Well, we sold our home. You see, what happened was we grew up in Brooklyn. We wanted to have a little more elbow room. We moved out in 1983 to central New Jersey, really in the woods. So we had a, you know, we had a yard there. But once I opened up the restaurant for a number of years, I was commuting in and it got to be old. And we wound up moving back here, long story short. So we don't do cooking in the backyard anymore. However, through the wonders and the gift of the pandemic, I got to do a lot of cooking this year in in our new home. I love to cook. Love, love, love to cook. And you love your customers, too, because you're in the restaurant every night, greeting people, talking to them. And that's just a wonderful thing. I know one of the restaurants I go to here on Long Island, the owner does that, and I keep going back. I'm very fortunate. I, I never knew. First of all, what you said is not true, okay? I don't talk to my customers every night because I don't have customers. I have guests. Ah. But other than that, I happen to love to do that. I never realized how much people appreciated that. I guess, I, you know, I never thought about it. But once I started doing it, I, and I had read reviews, and you look at my Yelp reviews, nine out of ten of them mentioned that I was there and I checked up on them, yada, yada, yada. And I'm just very fortunate because I love doing that. If somebody doesn't love doing that, it's not going to be the same. But that's, you know, that's what I do. It's, and, and I miss it. I miss it. Great. I don't want to talk. I said to myself, I'm not going to talk about the stupid pandemic and everything that goes along with it. But I did have to say that I miss it so much. Mm-hmm. I really do. Yeah. So, Paulie, we have a listener question. We let it slip out that you were going to be on, as I said. This is from John O'Brien. And John says... Ask him if he thinks New York is still the pizza capital of the world because there has been strong claims coming from New Haven, Connecticut, and Jersey. I personally would rather have Sally's or Zeppardi's in Connecticut. Ask him about his thoughts on boutique pizza as opposed to old school pizza, which I mean old toppings versus new bougie toppings like duck. I love them all. I love them all, okay? He said one word that I'm going to strongly agree with, okay? My favorite pie in Connecticut is the fresh clam pie at Zupartis. I love that thing. Sally's, I'm not a big fan of Sally's because I don't like the way they treat some of their guests, mm. okay? Some get treated better than others, okay? So I like Frank Pepe's a little more. But wherever you go and you love pizza, that's the pizza capital of the world, okay? Right. There's great pizza in so many places, especially now. The world's shrinking, and you can get online, and you can find out how to do things and make great pizza and anywhere in the world. 
So then, Paulie, let's, we have a lot of listeners that are backyard barbecuers. A lot of, they either have their kettle grills or their, a lot of, you know, gas grills, a lot of Weber's out there. And actually now pellet grills are becoming big. What's your advice for somebody who's making a pizza outside? Is it, should they use a pizza stone? My advice, if they're making a pizza outside, is to build, you know, if you want to make wood-fired pizza, is to build an oven and get it to a thousand degrees. Get a recipe that works like that. <laughs> really not. If you're making wood-fired pizza and you want to make a Neapolitan-style pizza, you got to get that oven hot. There's free Pompeii oven plans on fornobravo.com. That's where I got the plans to build my oven. And if I could do it, and I did have help from a guy who had a passion for masonry, like I have a passion for food, right? But that's my advice. But, you know, a caveat on that is there are people now using these uni ovens and getting great results outside, a right. rock box. Just my best advice is to make the pizza that you love. Try, try building one of those ovens. It's not that hard. Inside yes. the story, if you inside, there's a great little oven now from Breville called the Pizzaiolo. You can only get it at Williams-Sonoma. I'm not plugging Williams-Sonoma. I'm just telling you, don't try to find it anywhere else. But it's a great little thing. It looks like a toaster oven, but there were people doing great, great things with, with the Breville Pizzaiolo oven. Yes, I would love, Jeff, to, to start construction on a pizza oven for me this weekend. <laughs> but pizza stones, what, what's your feeling on pizza stones? I don't know. I never made a pizza in my life until I, you know, other than I would get like naan bread and put sauce and cheese on it, which gotcha. is really stupid because when you get the naan, it's already cooked. Now you're putting it in the oven and you're burning it. I really, I never did. I never made pizza. I'd get the baboli pizza shells and put stuff on. So I went right to the wood-fired oven. I can't, you know, some people use it. It's pizza steels. Wow. I'm telling you, today with these little things, it, it, talking inside, just get one of these, you know, get this Breville thing. You know, it's very difficult to trick out a kitchen oven to get it to the temperature you need to make that style of pizza. Jeff, do you realize that we are talking to someone who, until 10 years ago or whatever, basically didn't make pizzas, and now it's like the I know. And he's not only in New York. I see right. on his website he's in Chicago, Baltimore, Columbus. Now, let me ask you this, Paulie. Uh, go ahead. Chicago pizza. Are you... Making Chicago style pizza in Chicago, or are you using a? <laughs> we are making we're making Neapolitan style pizza in Chicago. We're making Detroit style pizza in Chicago, and we're soon to be making New York style pizza in Chicago. Okay, and first of all, you say I am in those places. My proteges are in those places. What I'm doing now is I help other people open up their own proteges. Okay, I look I I, I offer them entrepreneurship. Or offer them an opportunity to make it easier for them to get their own business started. Okay. okay? It was my my blueprint. They start with that and then they grow out of that. They use their to get their own ideas. Sometimes I wish I could stop them, but not all the time. Sometimes they come up with stuff I wish I had thought of. Mm -hmm. So that's what the other poly G's are. But in, in terms of pizza in Chicago, I love Chicago style pizza. Lou Malnati's is a big favorite of mine. But there's other great pizza in Chicago that's not New York style. Sorry. You mentioned Chicago style and New York style. I never heard of Detroit style. What is that? Uh, Detroit style, it, it, it's made in a little pan. Uh, it kind of started, there was a place called Buddy's that I, I don't want to get the history screwed up. If anybody's a, a real Detroit enthusiast, and I'm saying something wrong. Please forgive me. They make it in a little pan that, that we use for like spare parts on the assembly line. 
they take it, they line the pan with, with Crisco, I think, or something, and, and they put cheese on the side. It's cooked in this little pan. It's sort of like Sicilian-style pizza. It's not like Chicago-style, where Chicago-style is like a pie crust filled with cheese. This is more, it's bready, and the sauces are, and the cheese is on top. And uh, it's delicious. It's very good. The reason we're doing it there is Derek Tung, who owns and operates Paulie G's in, in Chicago, in Logan Square, soon to be in Wicker Park as well, for those of you who know Chicago. He, he had a real love for Detroit-style pizza. He wanted to do it right from the get-go. I discouraged him. I said, hey, you don't want to do that. You want to focus on this. Get started. And he didn't listen to me, and he did it. And thank God he didn't listen to me. It's a lot like Sicilian-style pizza, and it's great. Paula, you have, uh, I had some today, actually, vegan cheese. We are using Numu vegan cheese, which is vegan cheese is really good stuff. There's other good vegan cheese out there, but from what I found, I really, really like it. And we also make our own cashew regatta. We make regatta cheese out of cashew nuts. It's absolutely delicious. Yeah, Uh, the cheese I had was delicious, and and I am... Uh, Far from a vegan. I mean, I wanted to put pepperoni on my vegan cheese, (laughs) but but I would not do do that. You're lactose intolerant. A lot of people do that. I'm seeing some. I'm looking at on your menu right now online, and I love love some of these names. Uh, You have the Hellboy, the Freddie (laughs) Prinz, the Mutz. What's the Mutz? Mutz. Well, (laughs) Mutz is short for mozzarella. It's basically not mozzarella. Okay, not mozzarella. And this pie, it's a white pie. It's, it's basically, there's no sauce on it. It's all mozzarella. So we call it the mozzarella. It's also a nickname for my son. I, I, I did my best to name pies after family members. And my son, Michael, some people call them Mikey Mutz. So he got a pie on it. <laughs> so you have a family member who's Hellboy? <laughs> uh, that would be me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> Now, you also, speaking of Hellboy, because I think uh, you use Mike's Hot Honey on it. Well, those of you on the radio, if you look right now, uh, on the left side of your radio, I'm holding up uh, Mike's Hot Honey Yeti coffee mug, which is the best, by far, coffee mug I've ever had in my life. So there you go. Apparently, you helped put Mike's Hot Honey on the map. So uh, Mike helped put Mike's Hot Honey in the map by being shrewd enough to come to me and tell me he wanted to make pizza in my restaurant for free. Oh, and by the way, when I come in, when I agreed to let him do that, he said, I'm going to bring my condiment with me. So he did that. And I'm always looking, I'm, right from the beginning, I look to help other people in the community promote their products by using them, right? I learned that from my, my Pizza Yoda in Phoenix, Arizona, Chris Bianco. And I always look to do that. And Mike came in and I jumped on the opportunity. But I told Mike, I think this would go really good on one of my pizzas. And we came up with it. I said, but, you know, if we're going to serve this here, you can't make it in your home. The the health department's not going to take kindly to that. You have to make it in our kitchen. So he started making it in our kitchen. And soon thereafter, not soon thereafter, but it took a little while. But he outgrew our kitchen. And now he's he's like all over the world. You go all over the world, you find Mike's out of honey. Yeah, it's in my cupboard. I, I I was surprised. I was like, wait a wait a minute. We have that. It's got the big B on it, <laughs> and it's good. It is really good stuff. Mike, 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 and I have a a wonderful. We have a wonderful friendship through through Mike Sandhund. He's a great guy. Great guy. I've seen on some of your YouTube videos or, or your your review that people love the Hellboy, but I see that you also have a, a Hellboy squared or Hellboy two on your menu. Hellboy squared, right? Well, what happened was. 
when I opened up the slice shop, I wanted it to be a classic New York slice shop. I didn't want to get fancy, you know, and I would find a place. We have a lot of different topping combinations. A lot of them are, are sweet and savory combinations, but I want it to be classic over there. But the Hellboy is such an iconic, thank God. I don't know, just thank God. I, <laughs> iconic and i wanted to carry that over right so we serve a hellboy slice with with it would i don't put pepperoni on my pizza at our wood fired spot i use hot supersada pepperoni was a banned product in my wood fired spot i had a whole bunch of banned products i called them prohibitive peas because most of them started with peas pastas no peas on pizza no pasta on pizza no poultry on pizza no pepperoni on pizza right but I had to have this Hellboy at the slice shop. So we got some really good little cup and char pepperoni. If anybody knows what cup and char pepperonis are, these little things about the size of a quarter, they shrink up, yada, yada, yada. We also wanted to have Sicilian slices. All our Sicilian slices, by the way, have sesame seeds on the bottom. I got that from a place in Whitestone, Queens called Freddy's. Thus, that slice we have called the Freddy Prinz mm-hmm. that came from, from Freddy's, right? But... We wanted to make a square pie with the with the pepperoni and the Mike's had honey on it. So we call it the Hellboy Square. It's just a have to say a clever name. Yeah. Here's one that Len would like, the uh, pastrami Reuben. Oh, if 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 you like I gotta tell you something. I don't you know, if you like a Reuben sandwich, this damn thing tastes just like a pastr- a, a Reuben sandwich. It really is amazing. Definitely like that. When when oh, that's we would- baseball and barbecue. I had to force the barbecue conversation. Okay, we haven't talked about baseball at all. Because the whole I, stuff. I know, you know, I, I was all prepared to talk about baseball. Okay, let's do it. All let's right. do it. You're, I hear you're a Yankee fan. I am a Yankee fan. I, I love D.D. Gregorius, right? Uh-huh. Want, he would try to pull the ball all the time. I think he may wind up being a Yankee again. He might be. You know, I, here's the other thing. I, I think that they could take our third baseman, Try him out at shortstop, you know, put, put LeMayu at third and, and, and put Torres at second. That's, that's what I think they should do. Right. But more importantly, I want to talk about this, okay? Sure. My favorite ending of a World Series. You know what year that was? Can you guess? Please don't say 2000. <laughs> oh, oh, oh that, that actually did. Yeah, that, that is the best, okay? Uh, I have, I have a, a, a Met jersey, by the way. Guess what number is on my Met? 41. 35. 35? 35. Why is that? Bill and G. There you go. And it says G on the back. <laughs> my, my, my Met fan accountant friends, they, they got it for me. And I, I, wear, I used to wear it whenever he pitched, when he was on the Mets. Whenever he pitched, I wear that jersey in the restaurant with my favorite Met hat. Me, a Yankee fan, wearing a Met hat in the restaurant. Can you believe that? That's okay. Why That's was okay. my favorite Met hat? Why was it my favorite Met hat? Why? It had a little patch on the side. You know what that patch said? 2000 World Series. There you go. <laughs> Love that hat. But that was not, that, that maybe should be my favorite World Series ending. But I have, actually, my second favorite or third favorite was 2015. Because when, when, when the manager says you're done, you should sit down and shut up. Okay, don't try to talk about it, letting you go back out there again. And he made a fool out of himself, but he deserved that. Okay? Met fans didn't deserve it. But he did. And what's happened to him since? Okay? Nothing good. That's not my favorite either. You know what year my favorite was? Which one? 2020. 2020? 2020. Okay, Dodgers. Why? Why was that my favorite? 
Lasorda wins. He unfortunately passed away, but he sees his last game at no. Dodgers win. No. No? Blake Snell was pitching the game of his life. Oh, yes. Stage on earth, okay? Yes. And because he was going to face the lineup a third time, right. it took him out, okay? Stupid. I remember the Tim Kirchin interview. I yeah. love that because everything he said I agreed with. Yes. Okay? And that, that was utterly ridiculous. And maybe now they'll have a little sense and they'll put a little humanness. Humanness? I don't know. Whatever. To stop with the mathematics. It's not a math class. They won't. Jeff and I took a trip. We went to two of the uh, graves of the most, you know, we went to Ruth. Iconic Yankees. Yeah. We went to Ruth and we went to Gehrig's grave. It was actually really? right after the recent snowstorm we had. Where, where are these graves? Hawthorne. I, I, I was going to do something similar. I'm an Allman Brothers fan, and I was going to go to Macon, Georgia, but uh, I have to go back. We had to cut our trip short, but I'm going to go back and do that. That's interesting. That's, and that's nice as a Met fan. You went to the Yankee. Oh, yeah. Well, we, we're, first and foremost, we're baseball fans. We, we, when we came up with this podcast, we thought we would talk more current baseball, but baseball history is just so incredible that we really have focused on it. And not just, you know, well, now it's all major leagues, according to the Hall of Fame, but or Major League Baseball. But we we talk about the uh, the Negro Leagues. We talk about the uh, the women's league that they had. And of course, what's your favorite baseball movie? That changes all the time for me. Yeah, I love yeah. Bull Durham. I, mm. I love a, a league of their own. I, I love Major League. But you said it right there. Most guys, they wouldn't say that the League of Their Own was their favorite baseball movie. But that was absolutely my favorite baseball movie. Yeah, that was a great, great not movie. Not even close. I just yeah. yeah, we had on uh, Anika Orak, who wrote a, a fantastic book and illustrated it. And it's all about the All-American Women's Baseball League. And it's just right. highly and, and, recommended. And right, at the end of that movie, I cry. I'm, you know. Oh, when, yeah, when they're all getting right, and Madonna's uh, singing. Walk, and back, and walk back into the hall, and they see that they're, they're just looking around. It's like, oh, I can't believe it. So, and you know, we had Robert Wool on, so of course, uh, Jeff. Uh, Will Durham. Will Durham, right? Uh, you know, yeah. we love that one. Yeah. Here's a great one that most people don't know about because I think it was an HBO movie at first. Long Gone. You ever see Long Gone? No. Oh. William Peterson and, and adorable Virginia Madsen. Okay, you got to check. Virginia Madsen, is that her name? Long gone. I think so. Going to add that to the list. Yeah, yeah, Virginia Madsen. Great movie. Came out on HBO, so it never got right. a lot of, uh, it's hard to find. A great so, movie. William so, Peterson's like the aging catcher, you know, one of those things. You know, Len, Paul G is like your, your everyday guy. Guy's yeah. from Brooklyn, he can talk, he's very, very personable. You know, he like gets along with everybody. You know, he's just a great guy. Oh, yeah. And, and now I want to run out. I, I was about to get up and get a pizza. <laughs> I have such a craving for pizza right now. Yeah. Well, he was very entertaining to talk to, and we will talk to him again on our next episode. Now, do I have to wait for the next episode, or, or is this going to be like Netflix, where, we, where, we, where we're binging it? We, we have to wait a week? Is I think that we have it? to wait a week, yeah. I don't think I can wait. But okay, I'll wait like everybody else for episode number 84. And how do we usually end these episodes? By saying goodbye to each other. Goodbye. And then having on Baseball Always Brings You Home from none other than the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. We appreciate all of you. Have a good week.